Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny and empty day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Tim Chudley, Managing Director of the Sundial Group, an award-winning events group based in Northamptonshire. Tim, hello. Hi, good morning, Matthew. Good morning. Thank you for coming on the program today. Now, normally we charge headlong into the subject of leadership, but before we get there, we have to discuss the ongoing COVID-19 outbreak. Obviously, uh, this has had a huge impact on most businesses, and I'm sure you're no exception. How has COVID-19 affected your business? Well, as you can imagine, we're a hospitality business. We run um, venues for business meetings and uh, events, and they're closed. So I have 160 staff uh, on furlough. There's 10 of us working, looking after our uh, customer base and dealing with rescheduling of events and bookings. And uh, a further part of our business is uh, a team building and um, management coaching business. And they're developing online resources which are already being deployed to their clients. So, you know, there's an opportunity there for us to look at a new revenue stream mm. as a result of this. But in general, unfortunately, our business is pretty much closed down. When we come out of this, uh, when uh, the COVID-19 risk has abated, or at least uh, we go back to some semblance of normalcy, what sort of changes do you see coming in the conference uh, uh, sector? Yeah, well, we're obviously in the initial stages or phases of the return. Um, I think that social distancing is going to have a big impact. Capacity of meeting rooms is going to be very much down. Uh, We're very fortunate that our two properties are out of the city, Mm -hmm. um, very easy access with private transport, uh, and they're uh, historic buildings, sort of low-rise, so we haven't got lifts or um, those kinds of issues to deal with. Um, So I'm hoping that people will see our locations in the countryside as good ones to bring people together, particularly where corporate organizations have had lots of people working remotely I think there will be a drive to bring teams together in a safe environment and uh, just to experience being in the same room and, and being able to eyeball each other again. It's, uh, it's, it's fantastic what the technology has enabled whilst everything is shut down, but um, there is a human desire to be in the presence of other people. So I see there still being a demand for people to get together, but probably in smaller numbers right. and obviously in a safe environment. Now, do you see a point in time uh, where traditional conventions, uh, such as what you host, are a thing of the past and replaced by virtual ones? And if so, what is the transition plan uh, for that, for your group? Well, we actually anticipate there'll be um, a growth in hybrid meetings. So there will be a, a nucleus of people getting together and then other people will attend remotely. I don't think people will go back to the long-distance travel very quickly anyway, and I think that people will have now become more comfortable with the technology that enables people to connect. But as I said earlier, I think there is still a desire for people to get together. And the environment, because we're residential, the environment we create is very much around peer-to-peer learning and uh, people learning from each other's experiences. And a lot of that goes on 
outside of the conference room. Mm. Uh, it's over a pint or over a meal. Um, and so private dining and those sorts of environments was, I think, quite a strong contribution to people learning and, you know, having the experience of uh, spending time with colleagues um, in, in a dedicated and safe environment. So um, I don't think there'll be a complete move away from smaller meetings, which is what we do. I think you're right that big conventions and exhibitions is probably further to go in, in how to make those safe. Um, mm. But uh, obviously that's not, not the business that we're involved in. So uh, I'm, I'm not too sure about that area. Well, we should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? In our organization, we're a family business and very much a values-driven one. I know that's an overused expression, but um, the most important thing for me is that the people who work in my organization have a, a sense that they're trusted by the owners and, and the senior management to um, do the jobs that we ask them to do, and they've got the tools and resources that they need to do the job well, because I like people to bring their own personality to work and their own brain to work. Mm. So, you know, we try and enable um, our people. So for me, leadership is giving people a direction, giving people a reason to feel proud of their job, giving people the tools and, and knowledge to do the job well, um, and trying to help them to gain job satisfaction because hospitality isn't the best paid job in the world. So part of that is about recruiting people with strong empathy, who get enjoyment from looking after people and making sure that they can feel relaxed and happy in doing that, but also that the environment is a positive one for them and the guests so that uh, at the end of the day and the end of the week, they can go home feeling fulfilled, um, that uh, you know the guests have gone home happy and, and uh, they've done a good job looking after them. So, yeah, I think engagement and empowerment and um for me, it's about attitude. We can train most of the skills uh, that we need from our, our colleagues. So recruitment is much more about having people with a can-do attitude mm -hmm. uh, and strong levels of empathy. Let's go back to the beginning of your career, when you first started out your working life. Uh, did you have any particular influences on you, whether they be a set of circumstances or a role model who shaped your vision of leadership? I, I grew up in the family business, so I'm one of nine children. It's quite an unusual story. Um, both my parents were very entrepreneurial. They both started out basically with very little, and um, mm -hmm. our dad was a, an entrepreneur in, involved in the printing and food packaging businesses. Uh, and our mum, at the same time as having nine kids, um, ran a guest house. So I kind of grew up over the shop. Mm. And uh, from a very young age, we were all encouraged to carry suitcases and uh, uh, even let our bedrooms for pocket money. <laughs> so I guess the, the very earliest influence was definitely the home and the family. Um, we're all still very close, actually, and uh, that would be my first influence. And I think my first uh, experience of, of work after spending far too long at university um, uh, was working for a very big uh, corporate who are no longer with us, and that was a very negative experience. It taught me uh, that working in 
the old style of management, which was command and control and ownership of information belonged to the managers and the uh, frontline staff were expected to do whatever the management said without thinking or, or contributing. Was you know, I only lasted 18 months in that environment mm-hmm. and um, immediately went off and, and set up as an entrepreneur my own business uh, before finally ending, ending up back in the family business. So, yeah, I think... I didn't have a particularly good experience of working for a big corporation, Mm -hmm. Uh, but obviously I love working with them now, and I think the world has changed a huge amount over that time. Well, one can learn as much from good leadership as they can from bad, um, what not to do and and what have you. Um, Now, it's interesting that you mentioned starting at such a young age with that work ethic. Do you think that's something that's missing in the generation that's coming into uh, their working life now? Actually, I don't. I see many people um, who are enthusiastic. The young, younger today, I think, get a bad rap. Um, the people that we employ straight from school or from college are enthusiastic. They work hard. Um, if you can find either the right people or the right attitudes, they will give as much as anyone. And uh, so I'm a big fan of the younger today. And I think the fact that they won't be kowtowed by ownership of information because information is so widely available now they don't see that as a as a sort of a, a threat as it was sort of 40 years ago mm-hmm. um and and so I'm, I'm excited by the next generation i've got four kids of my own and i'm incredibly proud of them and they're very hard working um and uh, so so are most of their friends as far as i can tell well, that's an excellent place for us to leave it on. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. Uh, but before I let you go, Tim, what does the next 12 months have in store for the Sundial Group? Well, we can't wait to get back to opening up and welcoming people. And initially, our venues will probably open as restaurants, but then start to build our experience of dealing with, with COVID. And, um, I, you know, I'm hopeful that the, the COVID threat uh, is dealt with, but if it isn't, it's a whole new world, and there's going to be lots of opportunity. Uh, and luckily, we've got a massive bank of very loyal customers who are constantly in touch with me and saying, you know, we can't wait to get back. So you know, there's going to be opportunities, definitely. Well, Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the program today, and I do hope that you can come back when things get back to some semblance of normalcy. Tim, thank you. That's a pleasure, Matthew. Thank you. That was Tim Chudley, Managing Director of the Sundial Group. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection... was it wasn't Marcus Riscothi who gave me that nickname? Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. 
and you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in, a, in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, Warnie got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost i'd been i was a middlesex player i was mm. captain of middlesex all my focus was on helping middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later i've scored a test century which is something i'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at lords in your first test match. i mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly i started thinking wow hold on I'm, potentially i've got a whole england career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive... Mm. Um, source of advice for me so he was captain of Millsets you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role you know and just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah I, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things being with different people sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? 
Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you Quite. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment; that was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th- there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership 
I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in the completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so 
I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players, but actually I found it a very different challenge because you are, so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know even when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of. Uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, 
five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers. It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um actually. no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. 
Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. And I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.